The skin's off my second set It is! See myself come running back See myself come running back Running back, running back Running, running, running back See myself come running back See myself come running back So you were saying the other night Something about how when Minor Threat came out you were out on the West Coast, and it just didn't quite get over there for yeah. a while. Not to our town, like in 82 and up to 84. I mean, there might have been people with better tastes, but we were kind of jokey in our punk. It was just, if it was fast and aggressive and a little sarcastic. Like, I guess the Dead Kennedys were the kind of... Uh, first band that you could really like them when you were in sixth or seventh grade because they were so jokey and kind of um but always smart and politically smartly right yeah and and good players with like well-produced albums and stuff so it started with them and then so then flipper was a band that was the opposite in some ways but also in many ways alike in that they were uh ironic and uh rude and so those are my favorite regional bands, and this band called Tales of Terror Live was a band from Sacramento that I was in a punk band called Straw Dogs, and we had our first shows in Sacramento, and we had the open for, we were like first, and then Tales of Terror, and we wanted to be better than Tales of Terror, like in our minds we were, we were like more um, pure, like there was something less uh, showmanship about us and but this band Tales of Terror I mean they were doing like backflips off the stage and they just there was a little like Guns N' Roses in them or something or what you imagine if Guns N' Roses jumped around a lot they looked a little voodoo-y and stuff but they were just like miles ahead in their performance and <laughs> I don't know what Did happened Did they go on guys. to anything? They made a record on CD Presents, this that this promoter named Paul Ratt, he was a San Francisco punk promoter. And they made an album, and they toured a bit, but I, I think they had the heroin problems, and they had, they were live fast, die young, like in the true way. So I don't even know what happened to the guys. Um, and you but, still lived in Stockton. Yeah, that was when that band was going on. but. So that those three, and then the West Coast, the Circle Jerks, played in town. Black Flag came through, um, but in Sacramento, all the bands came. I mean, I saw GBH, Battle Surfers, uh, Discharge, Toxic Reasons, and MDC, and Good and Bad. You know, I saw it all. <laughs> in your mind, were you like thinking you'd probably migrate to San Francisco and, and go into? punk music as a kid Uh, no I thought I think I knew I was gonna go to college I was too I was gonna leave I mean I I was I wouldn't call myself a poser but I was growing out of I wasn't gonna be punk for life also in our town there was drugs and the heroin and there was an older generation of punk guys this band called the authorities which their singles on like killed by death it's well well regarded and it's a great single but they were like 21 when we were 16 and they uh they liked bands like the damned and um unfortunately johnny thunders but so these older guys all got into shooting dope and then some of the younger people in in our scene followed them and so they either never left stockton or couple of the older guys OD'd. None, none of my friends did, luckily, but, you know, it, you can't really recover from that unscarred. Um, so I was kind of always like, I got to get out of here. This is not going anywhere. And in the San Francisco punk scene was dark, and there was uh, the East Bay with, like, Green Day and Operation Ivy. That's a different story, but I also didn't like that music, so <laughs> that made it hard, you know, because I liked crime and uh code of honor more and and flipper than than those like bands with good values (laughs) so when you went off to college then were you recording the early stuff on like summer breaks yeah pretty much christmas summer breaks that was it was after college i skipped college making music i was just 
a fan, and that's when I heard more about. I knew about like Sonic Youth in high school, and not you know Mud Honey hadn't happened yet, or maybe Big Black. I knew about that, but it wasn't my thing. I was into punk, and then like more like Violent Femmes <laughs> and Echo and the Bunny Men, and like REM or something, and a little bit of well Van Halen and the uh, Rush and leftover things from atavistic leftovers from youth devo so yeah that's when for those four years were when pavement could have happened because that's when you know we heard about started learning about indie and and can and and faust and wire like wire was a huge band there everyone loved wire and 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 I, you know, I never heard of fucking Wire in Stockton. Just didn't know about that. Sex Pistols, yes, but not Wire. So you hit college in Virginia, right? And you're like, you're a West Coast kid. Did you feel displaced at all on the East Coast? Not so much because uh, that place is. It was in Charlottesville. It's like a bubble of. Uh, there's some kind of fraternity Southern boys that I didn't relate to, but. They just go about their business. They don't really hassle hassle you if you're not a, a, either a hot girl or um, they just leave you alone, you know. They're doing their rituals and going to football games. And There's outsiders. There's like northern people coming there. My friend David fr- from Texas. Um, but you did four whole yeah. years. Did Dave Berman and Bob do that too? Yeah, they're a year younger than me. And there was a good music scene there, it turns out. Um, not only did all the bands come through town, the SST bands and the, you know, the replacements, those type, any kind of college rock would come. Did we play there? We played there together. Oh, we did? I think yeah. a theater. Yeah. Did you ever come down to Chapel Hill? Not then. There were some bands from, from Chapel Hill that played in our town, like the Connells. I was in elementary school or something when the flat duo jets kind of ruled. They came there too. There was maybe like the anti scene or something. They, they're not from. They're, they're from Cali or something. Yeah, I don't really remember a lot till uh, Merge started, and I bet in the town there was good stuff happening. Just like in Charlottesville, there was well, there's Happy Flowers, which was on Homestead. It was kind of a joke noise band. They had the mom. I, I gave the cats some acid. It was like. They would just play noise, and these two guys would have tantrums, um, like ch- childlike tantrums. They would just say, like, Mom, I gave the cats a message. And other, that was their hit. So I, and then there was this band called uh, Baby Opaque, which they became this band called Bomb that was moved to San Francisco's, not in a neurosis vein, but not maybe like early but also kind of glammy and, and Jane's Addiction-y, but like real freaks. They were from there, and... Chapel was small enough to, to not really have any true, like, sages, you know, but the, I guess maybe the closest thing... Just townies, like townies that were on the radio station or had better taste. There wasn't any, like, something like that. XYC was, was a cultural bastion. I mean, it was over my head. I, they were too weird like <laughs> when i finally got a car i'd be driving home in the middle of the night kind of stoned and somebody would be playing like contact mic yeah. scraping for 45 minutes yeah. and i was just like what is the purpose of playing this like they seemed so contrarian but i was yeah. i hadn't been inducted into that yet but behind my elementary school baseball field there was a shack in the woods that was deteriorating and falling down, and, and Dexter Romweber lived in that, and it was called the mausoleum, and he wore, like, bones, like <laughs> human bones or something around his neck and had... That's cool. It was kind of cool. Yeah. Like, he had uh, these, Did like... Did you go out there and look at the spooky building and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody as an elementary school kid would be hip enough to know what the fuck he was doing. But but he had, like, altars to Buddy Holly and Gene Vincent. And he would, like, I think he would That's kind cool. of get transmissions from them and yeah. shit. And so and then, then, like, down the street, 
there was a heroin scene above this, uh, like, Greek restaurant. There was, like, these apartments that all the uh, Metal Flake Mother that was, mm-hmm. was our local, like, great band. Yeah, and I've they, heard of them. Yeah, they were really, really yeah. good, and they got into heroin and kind of melted away and, you know, destroyed yeah. themselves. And There was also, like, in, I mean, probably in your town, too, I'm not even talking about, like, all the cultural music that happened, too. There was, like, Sun Ra played, Cecil Taylor, um, Art Ensemble of Chicago. I mean, the, a lot of things came there and that were eye-opening and influenced me, you know, that was weirder stuff. You were talking about to Virginia. Yeah, to yeah. Charlottesville. Because there was, like, they were more, like, sponsored gigs of the school, but there was a, a good jazz scene there for that. And some blues... A lot of blues artists, John Lee Hooker always coming there, and uh, Hound Dog Taylor, and I saw a lot lot of blues shows that were really fun and good. B.B. King even played in the, um, in like this big outdoor thing for like the frat kids. That wasn't so great, but you know, he's just, he's such a nice guy, he's a showman, you know, he just played his hits for them. Um, you remind me a little bit of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Nice guy. So once you're in Virginia, I'm guessing you like retroactively learned about all the Discord history because they would come yeah, through. I knew about that. And Richmond has got a... Richmond has a weird... Uh, well, they had Guar and they, they also had this... Uh, Alternatives and Always August, these two weird instruments. Richmond was more, much more arty. It always has been. Um, but DC, I was still a little too late to be a Minor Threat fan or a Void. Or, I mean, I could appreciate it. Uh, Fugazi, I did like them. Like I was, I, I've seen them a couple times, but I didn't, you know, I not, I didn't not like them or anything, but I just, it kind of, I'm sorry to say this, it just kind of happened, like when I was into the Royal Trucks or something, that Fugazi was happening. They or, were almost <laughs> like, I felt like they distributed a lot of information by bringing cool bands with them, so they kind of that's true. Shut it thing and all those weird yeah. bands you you wouldn't have known about them. I like them. Yeah, they were. We, we really toured, good. We yeah. toured with Pavement Tour with them. I didn't know that. Yeah, we By, toured like, with them. Get Your Goat or, or, or no, later? on the major label album. Yeah. Like, roll down the road to... That was a great single, I thought. Um, they were on Epic, and they were also on Big Cat, our label, in uh, England. <laughs> and so we, we did, like, a full tour with the, with those guys. Were they much more normal than you thought they were going to be? They're Yeah, they're normal, but they're weird, too. You know, not... The rhythm section's normal, but like uh, Craig and Nathan, um, you know, they're they're intense guys. So like, they couldn't make that music if they weren't uh, confrontational, even in a nice way, right? Because <laughs> um, you know they're pretty like flamboyant, uh, and it could have, you know, it could have gone a different way. They could have, I mean, I like they couldn't be James Addiction, I guess, but they were in. A potential realm where in the grunge explosion they got signed and by the same guy that had rage against the machine and um and so i, I don't know but they're very good live metallic metal you know a bit i know their drummer the original drummer he they recorded at like water music in hoboken with this guy ted nicely mm-hmm. yeah so, He's still on the Facebook threads. Is he? Mm-hmm. He did like Jawbox or something. Yeah. Something. But he was a tempo freak, and like they had one of those like dragon things, some kind of like tempo thing they had in the 90s before Pro Tools. And uh, you had to play to this thing, like if you're the drummer. That, it would, it would oh, show. the first drummer. Yeah, the drum. He's a redheaded guy. The sec. It was Adam Wade Adam. or yeah. something. Yeah. Adam. Yeah. That guy was fucking good. I thought he was really Whew. good too, but he could not play exactly up to the standards of this dragon. He was telling me that's insane recording, and so he just had a terrible time recording. They got it done, but it was just like constantly that drum thing, like the tempo thing, and I, he was like had post traumatic 
stress syndrome or PTSD. Because they didn't nudge drums yet. No, I don't like, think. I mean, you could take parts, you could cut cut it up, or something. Yeah. But you couldn't uh, do that, I don't think. Or you know, if you did, it sounded weird. He was literally the most metronomic kind of spellbindingly like clean drummer around. I thought so. Yeah. I, th I thought he was great live, but he was telling me about maybe it was Ted nicely knocked him into into shape. How is your tempo? Is it good naturally? How do you know to get good tempo? Like, what are the jobs mm. that you do besides playing to a click? Is there anything to think about? No. I mean, honestly, you're either you got it or you don't. Yeah, because I don't have it. I don't either. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I know what records are supposed to sound like. Yeah. So that's my big advantage. You're fine. Yeah, that, so yeah. I can I can emulate anything, but I can't. I'm not a true drummer. I'm not a real drummer. A real drummer uh, is the pillar, the foundation of a band, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm, like, racing around everybody yeah. and fucking around, you know? Yeah. And so that wasn't really my interest in the beginning. Actually, I never said this before, but um, my big drumming idol was probably... Eric Gaffney. Oh, really? Because he would, yeah. he was just, uh, he made no sense. Yeah. He did whatever he wanted to do, it seemed like. Yeah. It worked for them, for sure. Totally. Certain soul drummers sound like they're like, they're just like fucking withdrawing and trying to get their alimony money. <laughs> so like their performance is, is bent by that urgency. Yeah. Whereas Eric Gaffney was like, he sounded like he was already going out the door. He was like, he was, he was already on heroin yeah. and he was out the door, but he didn't give a fuck about yeah. what you perceived his performance to be. And that really made a big impact yeah. on me. I was like, yeah. wow, I could kind of do anything I want to do. You know, yeah. that was heavy. And then later I realized that was kind of Charles... Gosher from uh, Sun City Girls MO. Yeah. Once yeah, I yeah. put that together, I was like... It's a double power duo. <laughs> well, of just complete uh, contrariness to the job of a drummer. You yeah. Know? But so that's not what you're supposed to do. Don't do that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, especially for like your You just got to do it. The, you just If that's how you do it. But that's also your... Even if you're doing that, your approach... I mean... Uh, yeah, they're, you're approaching it as a bit of a drummer, you know? Like, I don't really approach it as a drummer because I'm approaching it, like, as a song. I mean, for him, I mean, I, you know, he's just doing his thing. It doesn't really matter if it's serving the song necessarily. Um, I think you get into a little bit of the, like, ego-driven, Buddy Rich kind of vibe that you're the thing. band leader yeah you know if you're yeah. playing drums like that you're like fuck these other guys yeah. you know you're doing what you want to do um but when you go to like uh, what everybody expects of a drummer the tom petty like solid smooth thing yeah, yeah. that's a different school of yeah. thought and i didn't yeah. want to be in that school. i'm being like a little contrarian that i know what you mean but i'm just saying when if you're doing stuff to your own song it's hard to do that you know like if you're playing uh I see what you mean. It just doesn't... It's just going to stick out or something, and I can't... Plus, I'm so unconfident, really. Which I don't mind not being good at drums, but also people want to hate on you. Other drummers don't like it when you don't... When you play drums, uh, on, if you're not a drummer and you play, they don't really like it. They, they'll say they do, but, you know, they got to defend their turf. I don't necessarily blame them. I... I think at some point we all have somewhat of a revelation about like how simplicity actually really does translate really well. And you think about Paul McCartney, you yeah. think about the way he plays drums, you think about the way he plays piano and guitar, you know, like this guy could have really shown off. Yeah. He could have built himself into some Eddie Van Halen, right? But he never did that. He always yeah. kept things very basic and kind of stoned and shambling. And that set up a template for people. Mm -hmm. You turn on the AM radio, this is pop music now. Yeah. And so you think about how minimal his drumming style is on some like Wings song where he popped in and did, the, did it himself. 
that sets a pretty heavy precedent because then it's like if if that's all you need to do to make great pop yeah. music, then do you need to be like Earl Palmer? Yeah. Not really. I tend to agree to keep things simple. Also, even in in the wake of that template or so many other examples of it working fine in the Velvet Underground and uh, Krautrock. He came out from Texas, so does that mean... Did he bring, like, country music history to to your... No, he likes The Cure. I mean, that's his foundations. He's a Cure... That's hilarious. And uh, he's a Cure boy at heart. He was, like, uh, half goth, you know, before he got to uh, Virginia. I don't know how he got into the country. I don't really like country as much as a lot of people. I do like electric country, like the uh, Meat Puppets or uh, the idea of the Eagles, but not actually the Eagles. I can kind of play those songs. Well, I don't know why, but like I can. People seem to like my semi-country songs that are not really country. Um, they're like country rock, I like guess. Range life or something. Yeah. yeah, and I have more, and I have new ones, and they actually sound some whatever reason. Uh, there's a little like Sterling Morrison in my guitar solos. They're not like country, mm. so like I guess they're also like Velvet Underground fourth style country. So I can do that, but he, yeah, I don't know. He was like the he's kind of the Cure, Buttle Surfers, because that was a big band for us in college based on their live show they were so uh, much bigger like than the other b- indie bands yeah. <laughs> in their the trail they uh, blazed you know they were like an alpha style band um, <laughs> but he when David moved to after school he moved to Nashville and I think he just wanted to earn some money he thought he could just write some country songs and and people would like it, and he met, that city's like a music industry city. If you go to the right bar, people are involved in it. Yeah, I don't remember, like, him saying, like, you gotta hear this, uh, like, Freddie Fender, or, um, see, I don't even really know, I like Hank Williams or something, that's, that's enough for me, um, for country, yeah. What about you, do you like country a lot? It's, it's somehow in our bloodstream, or it's like, buried in our DNA you know what a record's supposed to sound like so your hands and your brain mm. kind of conform like here comes a drum fill here comes a guitar lick yeah. and you just know what it's supposed to sound like because of some car ride you took when you were six and somebody's dad was playing mm. this cassette over and over you just fill in the blanks you know did your family like country I mean I, I grew up in You're from Carolina. North Carolina <laughs> We were like a hippie family transplanted from Miami, and I just had a single mom. She, she was like in the workforce. She should get in her perm. 
hitting the eighties, just like yeah. cruising, getting a good Moving job. Forward. Yeah. Nine yeah. to five. She listened to that all the time, you know. Yeah. And uh Eagles, eight track, you know, she had like four records. Billy Joel yeah, Glass same here. And so you just absorb it. But uh but then eventually they, they started having the Black Mountain Festival it was a big get together kind of thing. And that was like very like that's like bluegrass uh, stuff. Yeah. And then the Merle Fest, I went to that, which was Doc Watson's festival. So I saw like Ralph Stanley and mm-hmm. and a ten of ten people and like uh, Tony Rice, like the flat picking masters. Yeah. I mean, as a little kid. But then you wake up years later and you're like, oh, this is kind of in my bloodstream. I can't help it. Mm-hmm. Maybe when you sing, you hear the southern. Yeah part of your life or something but i mean i like the concept of it or the you know a dude up with uh some nice lush music behind and you're like saying these true things and (laughs) um and uh you know it's a and it's like mid-tempo minus you know which is my natural place to be at this age unfortunately for the listeners but the uh so I I know that, and I think the idea of there's also the kind of Bob Willis orchestra of uh, country is could be great, but I don't. It's so white. Uh, I'd rather listen to Duke Ellington, or that sadness is more eternal to me. <laughs> Bless that spleef in my mouth Or should I say jaw baby Spin doctors are crazy Take it butch One time I was asked to write a, an essay. It was called like, uh, show some respect or something. They were like, just write something about somebody who you, uh, you want to pay respects to in the, you know, yeah. in the classic past. And so I was like, fuck it, I'm going to do David Gates. So I wrote this thing on bread, yeah. which, you know, is like... It a, was trailblazing in many ways because bread is about as cool as it's ever been in the last half decade or 10 years. At the time... It just seemed like a really good contrarian thing to throw yeah. in people's face or something. But so I wrote this long essay about bread, and um, I used to work at the homeless shelter just across the steel bridge. Um, oh, you did? Yeah, for 12 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, that's how I built all our bands up over over the years. I was just kind of chilling in the shelter, writing my, my lyrics. What did you do there? I managed the floor. I mean, that doesn't that sounds a little more lofty than it really was. I was like, I was just in the shelter with the 90 beds. So in case something happened or they need something. Well, you're supposed to make them follow the rules. Right. And which is like no drinking in there or whatever. All sorts of, yeah, like micro rules yeah. about like when you need to get out of your bed and, yeah. and go over here and mop the floor and shit. That was not my specialty. <laughs> but we actually had some really interesting dudes come through. I bet you did. Yeah. The guy who sang Hang on Sloopy. He ended up there? Mm-hmm. Wow. And he was that was like the McCoys. So yeah. that was like yeah, that sounds right. Rick yeah. Derringer's band. So Rick Derringer, I think, had taken all the money. Oh wow! And this guy had yeah. been, like left with with nothing, but he had like hardcore like showbiz charm. He every time he come up to get like a turkey sandwich or something, he was like just like such a pleasure to be around. He had a charm like showbiz yeah. vibes. But so and then we had one of Sunrise drummers, 
one of the guys in Decline of the Western Civilization from, like, you know, just like a punk that throws up in the opening scenes or something. <laughs> like, interesting dudes that would kind of, uh, you could talk to for a while. Yeah. The rest of the dudes, not as interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But a lot of funny stories that I could tell from the era. But so I guess one day I was checking some mixes on my, like, one of my first records. And uh, the bass line, I thought it was like sounding like probably like Dinosaur Jr., like this pretty lilting, rolling bass line. meth head limo driver was withdrawing like five feet from the desk and he just sat up in the sweaty revelation and he was like make it with you 1971 like he, he heard your he heard um, the bread rip. There, it was bread it wasn't a Lou Barlow dino thing but there is a similarity yeah. just a yeah. sad scale yeah. and Dinosaur Jr. was a sad band yeah. Yeah. so like you, you, I was just like I saw the cross pollination in his eyes yeah you know and that's i was like cool yeah and so I, when i wrote this uh, article i think i maybe mentioned crooked rain and, and and or maybe halfway through the article i'm like it occurred to me that maybe there was somewhat of a conscious turning back to our parents music yeah and that album for sure but that was conscious right yeah well yeah it was supposed to be kind of uh classic rock but the bass like bad things like the eagles and uh because our first album was so fall and and it was very uh scratchy and stuff you know it's just like i also like this or anything's game you can take anything and make it good if if you uh approach it the right way i guess and stuff so and i wanted to do something more song based so but there's like a can influence song on there. There's like a Dave Brubeck song. There's like some Neil Youngy guitar at the end. And but it was more 70s. The initial guitar solos are a little like "All Right Now" by Free or the first song, "Silence Kid." It was. It sounded more like that before Bryce mixed it. But he like mixed the guitars totally different than I had planned. But then I liked it. He made it sound more sloppy. So that was a template for the thing. It's like, you can like this too, it's cool, you know, or... But Dinosaur had that. Dinosaur is such a big band for that You're Living All Over Me. It was such a, like, revelation album in, like, many levels. Like, sonically, I don't know how they did it at Wharton Tears, but somehow it sounds murky, but, like, perfect, and um, the drums are quiet, but they're loud, and it just... For some reason, that one's lo-fi perfect. And the sound of that, yeah, that melancholy and the classic rock and the shredding guitar mm -hmm. and still punk. So I just, I, I hear that album is like influential and sonically too, you know, not just on like bands like that took, oh, we're going to make like loud, distorted pop songs. You know how like Graham Parsons had that declaration of like, I'm going to make cosmic American music, which yeah. he never really did. <laughs> yeah, right. But then, but Jay Maskis like said, I'm going to make whatever it's called, like ear bleeding country. Yeah. That is kind of a, a, I mean, Meat Puppets obviously yeah. kicked it off, but like it was kind of a left turn. You can hear this birdsy thing kind of yeah. like chiming with the doubled vocals yeah. and it's kind of like soothing it's like perfect uh 19 year old like 20 year old music you're through your adolescence but you're still like a little frustrated and you're i mean his music is a little more like i'm not getting laid <laughs> so you can relate to that uh album i don't know so that was, that was a massive record for guitar music for me I just yeah it, it like lit Chapel Hill on fire like all the small towns like yeah. it just sort of created like a type of guy 
with the kind <laughs> yeah, of like right. with the clothing and the <laughs> hair length and the way <laughs> that everybody fair. thought it was like it was a galvanizing lightning yeah. bolt or something and and what is it? our band could be your life like says that it was like marketed to radio like a major label record or something like i think it it sst tried to do that yeah for with your living, living all over yeah. me like it mm. kind of created a wave it was like uh it was a strangely ambitious marketing campaign or something. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I just know it was like all the dudes like a wide variety of dudes liked it at my college radio. And according to Matador, the 90s are like in now. And the kids want to know about the 90s. That's like, so I can't believe that's true really any more than... Uh, well, I think they want little kids to be making it though the 90s yeah, music yeah 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 that's what i think too it's like the kids are like getting encouraged to make either the same mistakes that everybody already made or like way worse mistakes that we had already learned from yeah. you know like there's some real dumb cock rock and elements and just idiotic lowbrow yeah. things because everything's a melange now you can just pick you know yeah, i'll take can... a little bit of uh you know, Karma Chameleon. Yeah. I love that harmonica sound. <laughs> it's like such a bizarre thing to do. But some kid out there now is just like, oh, it's completely legitimate. Yeah, right. You know, that would have been a battle line cross <laughs> back then. Yeah. yeah. I was just looking at my, um, this is a side track, but I had to clean this room and I threw away a bunch of uh, papers and I found my um, middle school yearbook and um, I hadn't looked at it like probably like 14 years ago I looked at it and um, it has like all these um, signatures on it, you know, like from kids, you know how you would get them signed. Have a cool summer. Yeah. And mine's like, it's so flirty, like. It's more flirty than like people are texting and sexting and stuff in a certain way. It's just like to a total fox. Like that's like one of the main there's these things people say where it's like to a person I've known a long time like Joe or there's formulas. But the yeah. fox formula to really hot fox, you know, like see you next year. Like I wasn't even I'm not even sure I could like have sex yet you know it's like seventh grade i'm getting all these like if i got messages like that if someone said that to me now you know it'd be like oh my god what let's go home now or something you know and like do it and it's like seventh grade where yeah. people just different or the form was fine that the girls were more forward or i thought people were more forward now but they're not evidently yeah to actually put it on writing you know like forever a text is one thing too. This is like forever in your your yearbook the whole summer. You're looking at it. It's like don't forget to look me up. Total Fox. <laughs> Funny. I was making a record with Aniello and the and the players in the band were like 18. I think the bass player was 17. 
And he was like flirting with a girl and asking for advice or something. And he like showed me his text messages. He's like, what does this mean? Like, what does she mean? Like with her tone. Yeah. And it was so indistinguishable because it was modern text language. Yeah. And it was all just like really vague, like Not almost direct. like kind of Rastafarian yeah. like slang, like bless up. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what she's trying to tell you, man. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is definitely pretty coded now. But I mean, I'm sure on some level, I, I imagine everything is always the same yeah. you know and there's probably I mean I thought it was when you I'm married so I don't flirt or anything on uh, social media but you know I'd, I I would be more like you know when I'd had a few beers or something I'd be like you're hot like what's up you know or mm-hmm. something like in so many I would be more direct you're a fox like you know like I have a bored <clears throat> hobby you get a new friend request you're like oh someone yeah. likes me and it's usually a robotic. I've got those on stripper. Twitter. It shows like yeah. they're, but they're um. If it's if I have a certain tagline like Las Vegas or something, if I mention that, then I, all of a sudden I uh, get all these, like, uh, naked half naked, eye chat things or something. I'll get like friend requests from these half naked girls, and at some point, maybe one of them wrote me and was like, "What's up?" You know. <laughs> So I'd just be like, I'm, I'm going to like see how, <laughs> see how far weird you are. Yeah, I want to like, I want to, I'm going to fuck with you. What your algorithm is or something. Yeah, I wanted to figure out, is this really a real person? And uh, so I start writing back and they just never reveal their intention. They're not trying to get money. They don't want to take me to some pay page where they yeah. do a strip show or anything. So I just get more. This has only happened once, technically, where where I like really pursued yeah. where where the the conversation would go, and so she just kept writing. It was really banal and kind of like uh, I don't know, just too casual. And then this is an amazing trick, but I reverse Google image searched her image because you can yeah. do that. Yeah, just go- look yeah. that up. And you, yeah. you upload the you photo. You find where it came from yeah. or whatever. And so I figured out that she was taking her entire inventory of her selfies from a girl that works like a scantily clad coffee shop in like <laughs> Bellingham, Washington or something, which was not where she claimed to be. Yeah. So, you know, those like drive through yeah, yeah. bikini yeah, yeah. places. Oh, we have one in Portland. Yeah. I'm sure it seems pretty popular. Yeah. At some point, I expose to her. I'm like, yeah. I send, start sending pictures of her yeah. to herself yeah. that she hasn't put up, you know? And she's kind of like not really reacting. Like, ha-ha, like typing shit like that. And, I, and I'm like, you should be, you yeah, know, I'm thinking you I should be you. really weirded out by yeah. this, you know? But she's just playing it off. And I'm like, eventually I'm like, okay, you're like a man, right? You're like a 40... <laughs> eight-year-old FBI agent, right? Like, I started trying to corner her. Yeah. And she's just rejecting all this stuff. This is clearly, it's starting to seem like maybe just a pathologically lonely person. Yeah. But I still don't really believe it. Yeah. And then she, uh, she's like, okay, okay, it's not me. It's not me. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, uh, well, why are you doing this? Like, why are you writing me She's not asking me for anything. She's not getting yeah. anything out of it. I mean, is this artificial intelligence gone? Is this Westworld? Yeah. And so she's like, okay, this is me, and sends me this other photo. And, of course, it's like a stock one. image of a <laughs> Muslim girl, but she's a model. And I reverse <laughs> Google image search that. It just goes on and on. She's, like, claiming she's too ugly to be, really show who she is and... It's just, uh, anyway. How weird. So it was a real person. Yeah. An individual just doing this for flirt, to flirt with people or something if they wanted to. It seems like it's got to be a 60% chance it's an old man. Yeah. You know, but why, yeah. why are they talking to me? They're just, yeah, right. they're just reaching into the void <laughs> for some warmth, some attention. You know, I bet you kind of, he or she kind of liked that then that you were. You know, I'm caught. Oh. <laughs> it's sad. It's a sad moment because you think it's a real friend, potential friend reaching out. 
Do you record Holy Sons yourself then, like in the, that studio or your rehearsal room, pretty much? I started as like a lo fi militant kid that was like using Walkmans and stuff. Did you ever record on Walkmans? Yeah, I've done that. You can also then, then replay your thing and double record. I did, I've done that before, you know, on a boombox or something. Yeah. You could do primitive uh, two track recording. Totally. I mean, we everybody does that first. And then I just put out this record that was produced by John and Yellow. He's a really good engineer. So, yeah, you know about his stuff him. sounds, yeah, it sounds like classic Rocky sounding Kurt Violin dinosaur. Right. Like he's done Sonic Youth. That's mainly what I know he does, but he does tons of other stuff. His brother invented the Eventide Harmonizer in the 70s that Bowie and you know yeah used. yeah yeah so they have this weird streak of Brooklyn brilliance to them they're really really smart guys yeah um I don't think he's ever used a plug-in so he's like a I mean he shows up with a huge Tupperware Outboard container of things. like yeah LA2A yeah teletronics things and and he's a master at compression. Like you can't hear his compression, but you feel it. It's like he's an old school master. We're old enough now to to see things from like the Willie Nelson perspective of weathering decades. So there's kind of like this sense of like you're gonna go up some years and you go down. You're gonna go back yeah. up. You're gonna go back down, and then eventually you're just like, "What the fuck is the difference?" You know what I mean? You're gonna stay down everywhere except New York and LA and Chicago, probably. You know, that's just the way it goes. San Francisco. But there's a there's like a grace to accepting that reality. Yeah. You know, if you always kind of jammed a Kano, then you never were that high. So, I think, uh, at least for me, I mean, I I was only in the tour bus like once or twice at the end of pavement in America. In Europe, I was much more often in a tour bus. Not a very nice one, but you probably were too because they're not as expensive and it's just a way to get around fast. When you were moving from Crooked Rain towards Bright in the Corners, so you, you were sort of having to maybe accept that this system we're talking about, like of like using a big time producer. And did you go, you go into that like totally willingly or, or was that something you were a little uh, trepidatious about? Well, we just kind of stuck with the same people that we made the first one, which was Slanted Enchanted um, by ourselves and uh, like in a basement studio. And so it sounds like rough. And then the second, the Crooked Rain we did in a, I did mostly in in a uh, rehearsal room in uh, Midtown, and then uh, we did go to this place called Baby Monster, which was on 14th Street, and Matt Sweeney had said like there's this place Baby Monster, and it was fifty dollars an hour, and you could mix there. So we were just planning on mixing it ourselves, and it had a Neve board and these things we'd heard about that were really going to make it sound better. And when we got there, there was an engineer there. His name's Bryce Goggin, and he he worked with uh, Chavez and like Elliot Sharp, and he and he kind of just took over because like there was all these all these things we didn't know what to do with mm. compressors and reverb, and and we had recorded it ourselves just direct into the tape machine, and he, then he was he took over and started just mixing it kind of without even asking. I mean, we were like riding the faders a little bit and saying like, that's supposed to be, I give him a setup of what the song was beyond the rough tape. 
And then he was so good, he made it sound like a like a real band, like big and fat bass, and like he re-recorded the drums, like uh, he would, because uh, there was no bottom snare, like recorded for whatever reason, because we didn't know um, how to do it, and so he he just ran the snare sound back into the studio and recorded a snare just sitting there, you know, and. Uh, so when the snare would hit, the bottom snare would record. Mm. He did all this kind of stuff. And he was very quick. And I think like he had like a 90% success rate or 75. We had to do a couple over and we scrapped a couple songs. But so then that was, you know, basically like ha having a producer because he, he was a mixer and we just didn't know it before we got there. And then we used him on the Wowie Zowie to mix it, not record it and then also the one you mentioned bright in the corners he did this band called space hog which had a hit called in the meantime i don't know if you remember them barely one of them was married to uh um steven tyler's beautiful daughter Liv tyler they were like two english guys from leeds and so he was getting a name and then he moved on to work with fish almost exclusively Wow. Um, during the drug era too and during all eras then we used Nigel so the time I only used a producer only time we used one was with Nigel Godrich who all engineers and studio people um, kind of rightfully uh, are in awe of because he's pretty much the alpha of like new generation producers and he was interested in pavement they liked uh, Wowie Zowie. He and like Radiohead um, were fans. And he's like, I have time off and I'd like to do it. And then I was like, well, this guy. And he also did Beck, like uh, Mutations, which he was really proud of. He, he played me some of that and he was totally psyched. He had just done that. And so that's when we used one. And I didn't uh, know what that was going to entail. But he was cool. You know, he was like, you don't. I just want my percentage points. You don't even have to pay me a fee. I'm free and I'm already made a lot of money and I want to work with you guys. So we'll just carry this to the end. And you know, we paid for the studio time, of course, which started to get expensive because first we started at the Sonic U studio. When we got there, like they also had a, a nice Neve board, but like the faders were upside down. They, they went, um, down and we recorded like three days and Nigel was losing his mind um, trying to figure this out and he wasn't getting like he couldn't get the Nigel sound so he's like we have to stop and uh, <laughs> there was like headphone mixes were dubious at best and there were some a lot of reasons why we left but then we went to this place near uh, the new NYU park it's not Tompkins Square right it's the other one it's, Washington? School? Yeah, I was there. It was where the Beastie Boys recorded uh, <laughs> Intergalactic and stuff. This is just what I remember. You know, like, I wasn't why I wanted to go there. Yeah. And it was on, like, the 14th floor of this really nice apartment building. And it was a small room because it's New York, but it was, like, really fancy. I just don't remember what it's called. But it was super nice. He's like, we're going to do it here. So then... You know, a few thousand dollars later, we had like seven tenths of the album. And so then we went to England, where he lives, and we went to Rack, where he started. Mm. Rack's a great historical studio um, where Mickey Most owned it. And he was a hit maker with uh, hot chocolate. And uh, <laughs> he also knew the Yardbirds and Jimmy Page. I mean, he, was, he wore leather pants still. He was, and had a fancy car, but would only get like Marks and Spencer sandwiches, like cheap and rich at the same time. And his daughter worked the front desk and she was pretty. And he would just sit in the um, lobby and just be like, how you, how you doing boys, are you winning? You know, he would just, that was like a real like classic rock overproduced right. $100,000 record or whatever, Which Terror Twilight. Which kind of seems <laughs> to cancel out some of the need for a producer. Cause at that point you just, anyone paying that much money and putting yeah. that much effort into something could make... You should be able to make something good, you right. know? <laughs> you had a couple singles on that. 
I mean, yeah, it's they were like spit on was... a stranger, and there were some. I mean, it came out all right, but that's a long way of a- answering your uh, producer story. <laughs> For some reason, I think of that as like a Portland, Oregon record. Because I had just maybe moved here. Yeah, we rehearsed here out. for a second at Larry's old studio. The uh, we tried to the rehearse. old jackpot. Yeah, we started rehearsing there, and it just didn't sound that good. He was taping it too, and so there was maybe a mine that we could record there, but it didn't have a nice sound. I think of that old studio as like a sort of a lo-fi studio that yeah. him and Elliot Smith set up or something. But he had, again, like a fancy board that they had just got received. They bought, Elliot Smith bought like this huge, I remember the day it came, I think it was like a quad eight or something, had a name like that, but they're like, it's coming today, we need help moving it into the studio. You know, we need some manpower. It's like 97? Or? Yeah, and it came and it was like, came in a truck, it was weighed two tons and it was too big for their room like they just didn't do they didn't do their due diligence it wouldn't fit even through the door you know they they had they just had to they could put it in the studio but not in the console room (laughs) so elliot smith was always like a a gearhead essentially he was he was excited to step up into that world i think so i think he was probably like a lot of people he had a bunch of money and he didn't know what to spend it on. So, you know, if he was smart, he'd bought like Martin guitars and U87s. And when he wasn't smart, he was buying other stuff, you know, that he shouldn't have been buying. But, you know, I think he was just like, I, yeah, I want to get George Martin's compressor or whatever. And a Fairchild compressor and a U87 and great stuff, which I, I think that's a good way to spend your money. I mean, at least it's always going to be there if even if you don't know how to use it the obvious thing that if you don't know how to use good stuff it's not going to matter but that's why i never buy good stuff (laughs) so when did you first move to new york is that after college 1990 i moved there i graduated in 88 and yeah i moved i lived in jersey city though at first, because uh, Bob Nastanovich from Richmond, Virginia, was the first of our like kind to move up there, and he was braver and willing to work any job. So he worked at like UPS in the shipping. He eventually drove a bus because uh, it's you know it's hard to get a job in New York uh, even then. I mean, I guess it's not that hard, but it seemed hard. It's not hard to get any job. But where was Mark from? Mark's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He was already there. He he moved. He moved in the '80s, and he he, he was he was in the Dust Devils. They were like the kings of the scene. Their two uh, leaders, Michael and Jackie. Um, she was from Australia, and he's from England. And they were always at Max Fish, and they loved the fall, and they loved unrest, and they were a band of fans. They weren't uptight, like, we're so cool, we're in a band, you know. They were in the front when Jesus Lizard came every time, or they were, when Laughing Ienos played, they were in the front row. They were the first people that were nice to us when Pavement started. They said they liked Pavement, whereas there was more of a scum rock um, contingent, which people turned out to be nice, but they didn't seem like they were if it was, like... Cop shoot cop or the unsane and uh, did you at the time were you like uh, we're up against this uh, context where like we're not gonna be like the tough guys or whatever yeah yeah they and but we were you know more like Hoboken types I guess because we also lived in Hoboken you know we weren't like Richard Kern styled. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like him and stuff, but like you weren't like time, the, the swans was, is what you were. Yeah, thinking not of. the swans yeah. and live skull and this like New York uh, noise thing. But it turned out that there was a thing happening that we were part of that we didn't really know, which was like Sebado starting and Love Child and like uh, there was just you know there were more nerds out there than we knew. Yeah, um, and then I guess like Super Chunk. In Teenage Fan Club, they were unmatted. I mean, they were softer and, like, nice people yeah. first. 
But, so uh, you're saying like the Westing mm-hmm. stuff or the or whatever? I guess you yeah. s- like sleigh tracks or something. Yeah. So that stuff you you had made on a four track, right? No, that was in the Gary's place too. Oh wow. It, yeah, but that was more a Drag City era thing. So that while it doesn't precede New York, it um it was tangential because they heard our single. They were just getting started, and we got the Royal Trucks. They're going to be our first thing. And we had heard that first Royal Trucks album, which is amazing and uh, really weird. And Royal Trucks were part of New York scene a little bit because Neil was in Pussy Galore. And um, Pussy Galore was a big... That wasn't like D.C. or something? He was originally, but they moved to New York. And so Pussy Galore was kind of like a king of the scene band, like deconstructed scum rock band also um but royal trucks were so weird and uh so we said like yeah i mean you've got a good start we like the royal trucks you guys are cool they kind of knew touch and go people and they they were just had a chicago um honesty thing going on (laughs) we're gonna pay and we're not we're not fly by night because there were these labels that wanted to sign pay there's one called circuit which you have to look up but you so you like released that early stuff ourselves in a climate that wasn't particularly maybe ready to celebrate it but then at some point you woke up and you had all these peers that were rising up making similarly like brainy weird shit king kong band king kong there was just singles you know and then there was like fanzine acceptance of the band there was still fanzine culture seemed obviously with computers there's not as much fanzine there's internet fanzine but it it's somehow I don't know. It's, it doesn't feel this. It might feel the same to a 20 year old as it did to us, but there was more negative reviews for one thing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there was more, more, uh, pettiness and like, and sometimes calling things out for what they were, but, uh, <laughs> were you ever like attacked? Uh, not so much. I mean, we had a pretty, good go of it. Fight! Wait. 